Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 66 of Yoga Land. Before we get to the interview today, I want to make the announcement that Jason's 2018 500-hour teacher training dates at Love Store Yoga in San Francisco are posted online. So if you are interested in training with Jason in person, you can go to jasonyoga.com and click on workshops and trainings or click on the schedule page and find out if it works for you. We hope to see you there. Today's interview is with Jessica Berger-Gross. Jessica is the author of the literary memoir, Estranged. It is a beautiful, moving, hopeful memoir about being estranged from her parents. Jessica was raised in a seemingly very typical middle-class Jewish suburban family in Long Island, but behind the scenes, she was suffering physical abuse from her father. She made the decision in her late 20s to stop communicating with her parents, not really knowing that that decision would become permanent. And now, 17 years later, she's written this memoir. As I said, it's beautiful, and she is now happily married and has a son of her own. And I feel a real kinship with Jessica. I worked with her at Yoga Journal years ago when she was a new mom, and she wrote a blog for me there called Enlightened Motherhood, and I got to know her there. But when you write a memoir as she has, you just feel like, you know, you know her even more intimately, which I think is a great gift to the world. Jessica is also a yoga student. She was a teacher for a while. She studied at Yoga Works with Matias Rati and Lisa Walford. And she's also devoted a lot of her studentship to the Iyengar yoga practice. One of the reasons I started the podcast was to not just feature yoga teachers, but to feature people who use the yoga practice to help them be their best selves and to help them manage their challenging careers and the emotions that come with it. And I know that writing this book was a really emotional experience for Jessica. So we talk a little bit about, you know, how her yoga practice helped her as she was writing the book and then also how it helped her with her self-development. And she tells some really interesting stories about how yoga just helped her really connect with her body which had been she'd felt so disconnected from since you know she had been abused so it's just a really beautiful conversation and I hope you enjoy it what compelled you to write the book to write such a personal difficult story for me it was the story as a writer that I absolutely had to tell when I started writing I started writing about this topic in a in a different way and in a much less Well, I don't want to say less thoughtful, but it was so close to everything that had happened in terms of the estrangement that it was hard for me at that point to like have any perspective on it. But I did try and write something about growing up in a house where there was child abuse many years ago in my late 20s, around 30. And then it just kept coming up. Like it kept coming up for me. At that time, I, I got an agent and almost sold it. And I'm so glad I didn't sell it to a publisher at that point because I just really wasn't ready to write it. Yeah. And so I would almost like try not to write it. And then different editors I'd meet, like just every so often someone would say, wait, you haven't spoken to your parents in how many years? You have to write about this. 
And for a long time, after that first experience, I just didn't know if anyone would want to read it. I didn't know if I could deal with writing it. Such a heavy topic. It's so personal. But in the back of my mind, I kind of always knew I would try one more time. And when my son went to preschool and I had a few hours a day, I just started writing about it. Those sort of very early essays eventually wound their way into the opportunity to do a short ebook, an Amazon Kindle single about being estranged from my parents. That became a surprise bestseller. Wow. I was really shocked. I mean, because so it, it was just published through Amazon and people found it. Yes. But they had this whole program where there was an editor, a wonderful editor who curated and he would, it wasn't like you just kind of publish it on Amazon. Uh You would go through a process with him where he would, he wanted you to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and he, he connected to the subject matter and we had several meetings where he guided me and he edited the piece. And so they did a great job and they put a great cover on it and they had an amazing copy editor. And I'm not someone who reads eBooks. I mean, I don't read things so much on, you know, electronics other than like short essays and articles and stuff on my phone, Mm -hmm. but in terms of books. So I just didn't know that it would find the audience it did. And then it really did. And a lot of people read it and a lot of people reached out to me people who had been through child abuse or people who were estranged from family members or wanted to be, but were scared to be. And also I heard from editors who were interested in the idea of my turning this into a book. And so That's great, at that point Jessica. I got a new agent yeah. and, and then I, so yeah, so it just like opened up this opportunity that I kind of thought was like really long gone. I went from the, that sort of long essay to a book proposal. The book proposal was longer than the original essay. So I worked on that for months and months with my agent, who was a really fantastic person, super helpful and smart. Then we sold the book proposal. And then I started from the beginning and, you know, had to actually sit down and write the book. This was a few years ago. So it's it's been a long time coming and it felt as hard as it was to write. I knew that I had to do it and my life wouldn't be the same if I didn't do it Mm. because there was something about like growing up with this secret, you know, being able to tell it so powerful and it almost blocked other things I have to write about. You know, it's like I had to get this out first before I could move on to other things in my writing life. That makes sense. That makes sense. I felt that way when I wrote about my experience with depression and anxiety. I wrote a fe- just a feature for yoga journal, but it was just like, it was there. That story was just gnawing at me for the longest time. And yeah, it can right. kind of block the creative process. And it's not that necessarily you're going to enjoy the process of writing about this incredibly intense, difficult subject, but you're compelled to do it. Like, mm-hmm. So why was I compelled to do it? Just because I was compelled to do it. I had to do it. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do it because I didn't, I didn't know for years. I thought I wouldn't. You mentioned feeling guilty when you first cut off contact with your parents. And I'm just wondering, like, what are the things that you did to help you move from feeling guilty to feeling more liberated from those relationships? Yeah. And I love how you talk about feeling liberated from the relationships. 
as opposed to just feeling less guilty because it's all true. I, mm-hmm. I felt very guilty. I still do feel guilty sometimes, but I feel an immense sense of liberation in my life. You know, I feel really free in a way I didn't know I could feel. Therapy was extremely helpful. I mean, I, I don't think I could have gotten to where I am now in terms of like where I'm at emotionally and in, just in thinking about all of this without, without therapy. Mm. So that's number one. Yoga has actually been a huge tool for me. Like, I don't know how I could have done all this without yoga either. Mm-hmm. When I started practicing yoga more seriously, that, that helped me like quit smoking and drinking and that switch just helped me see things more clearly and also like learn how to take care of myself and take care of my body and when I was feeling bad. Mm-hmm. So that was something. And then anything I could do to take care of myself would make like even, you know, like massage, for example, massage, meditation, anything I could do to feel better and more in touch with my body would help me to understand that what happened to me wasn't okay. And that, you know, people don't deserve to be treated that way. Mm. And it's not okay to be treated that way. And I have the right and everyone has the right to be like healthy and safe. Mm. So the more I could take care of myself, the more that became obvious. But when you grow up being hit and yelled at by the people who also love you and take care of you, that's not obvious. Yeah, that makes total sense that it would not be obvious that because it's like a boundary has been crossed. So as a child, I've done a lot of therapy for my family issues as well. So it's like, when a boundary is crossed as a child, you, you have no way of identifying that. So you don't feel like your body is your own, or you don't feel like your emotions are okay. Or you don't feel like for me, like I didn't even necessarily feel like my opinions were valid unless they were validated by my family because Mm -hmm. of that, that boundary crossing. A couple of interviewers pointed out something that I thought was really interesting that I was estranged, the idea that I was estranged from my family as a child, like before I ever became estranged, I was estranged mm-hmm. in that I was seen as the different one and kind of like the crazy one, mm-hmm. whether for my political beliefs or just, you know, I don't know, even like the way I dressed or the way I thought about the world. There's also like if someone, you know, if you're a little kid and your parent is telling you, is cursing at you and saying you're like a spoiled bitch or I mean, you believe that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Especially because they're the people who love you the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what your parents tell you, you you take to be true. Mm. So it takes a lot of work to undo that, a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And when when you ask me about tools, like it's not just about not feeling guilty, but about like undoing all that childhood stuff that made me feel bad mm-hmm. in the first place. And so that's where anything I could do to take care of myself. So therapy, yoga, like learning how to eat healthy because I didn't grow up eating, you know, let's say eating a healthy diet. So learning how to take care of myself, like mothering myself, learning mm-hmm. the most basic ways of how to just, you know, be a healthy human mm-hmm. were essential. The better I felt, the healthier I felt, the more I could understand that 
that what I was doing was okay. It was more than okay. I was making a healthy choice, mm-hmm. a really difficult, heartbreaking choice, but that in the end, I was saving myself. You know, as hard as I'm sure it is for my parents, in a way, I I, I hoped and hope that this choice was better for them too, because I just don't see why us continuing to be in a super dysfunctional relationship where we're fighting and manipulating and driving each other crazy. I don't see how that's helpful for anyone. Hmm. You know, one of the things I've thought a lot about is just how hard it must have been to not have anyone to tell for so long. You know, I think there was one person you were thinking about telling as a kid, but you just, you know, didn't have the courage. The thing I marveled at too was like, even in college, when you went to therapy, like the first counselor you met with was just not helpful. Didn't he tell you to snap like a rubber band on your wrist or something when you had bad thoughts? That was in high school. (laughs) That was in high school. Yeah. It was like the grad student you could see for free who came to school once a week. He he told me to wear a rubber band and snap it when I had like a destructive, self-destructive thought. So who did you first, (laughs) I can't remember, who did you first tell? And then I guess the other subset question to that is like, when did you finally first tell someone who could actually help you with, with healing from it or dealing with it? The first person I told was my college roommate who became my oh, best friend right, right, right. in college. You know, she wasn't an authority figure. She couldn't do something like change the situation, but she did help me a lot. It, it really, really helped to have someone who I could hold up the phone to when my father was yelling at me and who, you know, agreed that he was acting crazy mm-hmm. and it wasn't right the way he was treating me. And just talking to her about it, confessing mm-hmm. the childhood abuse and talking to her about the relationship, the ongoing nature of the dysfunctional relationship did help. You know, I don't know that I ever told someone who could change anything. I had to be the one to change things. If I had told someone when I was a kid, then maybe there would have been some action, you know, mm-hmm. taken. The reason I didn't tell was it just, it seemed impossible. I would blow my family apart. You know, I mm-hmm. imagined my father going to prison. I imagined my mother, who was a teacher in my school district, losing her job. I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I thought as a kid. I knew we'd lose our house and that that was really important to my mother. I felt that my brothers would hate me. So I just couldn't, I couldn't get my, bring myself, you know, to tell a teacher, to tell a friend's parent because I was so scared of the repercussions or that I'd end up, what would happen to me? Would I be out on the street? Would I be in foster care? And maybe, maybe I'd get a better family, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. better family. Maybe it would be a more dangerous situation. My, my college best friend was freshman year, was the first person I really confided in, in depth, but there was someone the summer before that I'd gone to uh, an arts program at Bennington college where I studied poetry and drama and there was um, oh, told like the a, RA, an right? RA yeah. in our house. She was a college student, just a couple years older than me. And I did tell her and she said, you know, you only have to wait one more year, one more year and you'll be in college. And, you know, that's the best she could do. I mean, how, yeah. how, what would she know to say? She's only a little bit older than I am. Yeah. That was my mentality too. You know, growing up on Long Island, it was, College was really important. I was told by my parents and figured that if I, you know, broke relationship, my relationship with them, I wouldn't go to college and therefore wouldn't be able to support myself as an adult. 
And there was no internet. So I didn't, it wasn't like I could research and find out, oh, actually I could get financial aid as an independent minor. Yeah. How would you know that? So, I mean, it's such a, like you carried such a weight around for so long. And one of the things I've been reading about lately are these adverse childhood events. Have you heard of the ACEs? No, but I've read a lot about trauma. I mean, how trauma affects you. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I I first read about it in the book, Hillbilly Elegy. They've identified these events that can traumatize people as children. And what he says in that book is like, he had one person in his corner. He had his grandma and, you know, his grandma was not a great mother to his own mother, but by the time right. she was raising him, she'd figure, figured some stuff out and she was a really good grandma. And that's why he feels like he was able to, you know, go to the military and get into college and grad school. You did it all on your own. Like, how do you think you did it? How did you get through it? I did have people on my side. I mean, I didn't have one adult that lived in my house, but I had this wonderful librarian at my Hebrew school. And then I had an amazing drama teacher in high school. And so there were people along the way and friends along the way. But I think that there was something in me that, you know, I had like a fight in me Mm -hmm. and just a quality of resilience. It, did, it didn't and it doesn't feel that way because I'm a really sensitive person and I'm an emotional person and something crappy will happen and I'll feel sick physically. Like I definitely get really affected by things, but yet I do have something in me that like won't give up, mm-hmm. you know, and like I kind of like it's that image of like you get pushed down and you just come back up again, like one of those dolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, I never saw myself that way. But like looking back, I wanted to be okay. And I wanted, I just wanted to come out the other side really, really badly. Mm -hmm. But even like with my writing, you know, like every time I'd get a rejection, I would consider quitting writing (laughs) really seriously. And then I would just like send my work out again. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that, but on a much bigger scale, we're just you know, what is the alternative? Like, what's the alternative to continuing to try to get better? Feeling really, really bad. And I didn't want to feel really, really bad anymore. Right, right. Like you had carried that around for long enough, probably. When you first stopped talking to your parents, it wasn't, you you know, you didn't necessarily have the plan that you weren't going to talk to them again. It was just like, what I remember from that story of the last time you spoke to them face to face is that, in some ways, they both acknowledged for the first time that the abuse had happened. Right. It was just kind of amazing. And it's like you got that acknowledgement and then you kind of realized you needed some space. And then you never, you never went back. Do you think that getting that acknowledgement was like the helpful catalyst of you realizing like, I just don't need to do this anymore? Or did, did the estrangement, did what, what you call the estrangement now, did that just kind of happen gradually. It actually wasn't the first time that they acknowledged the abuse. Oh, I'd say it was okay. maybe the first time that the full the full force of it was acknowledged, but not really because one problem I had with my parents and just like figuring out how to deal with this relationship with them in my 20s was that they did acknowledge what happened, but they just diminished its importance and they also put like 50% of the responsibility on me. So that was the thing. It was that, you know, I was a difficult child. I was a spoiled child. 
I was like a troublemaker mm. and my father had a temper problem and maybe my mother should have did, done something and she didn't because she loved my father. So those were the kind of thoughts that were swirling around in my house or, and in our relationship in my 20s. I first confronted my father when I was in college and that's when I talked to my brothers about it too. And there was like one of my brothers had said to me, it happened, forget about it. Mm-hmm. You have to forget about it because the only way to keep our family going was to forget about it. Mm-hmm. So I did work on forgiving for a long time. Then much later, I learned that, you know, forgiving doesn't have to mean forgetting. <laughs> but the way the break happened is that I had been living in Wisconsin in graduate school. I came home to visit my parents for a weekend and my father just got really huffy and was being sort of like, not that he was going to hit me. He was just threatening. His temper came back and it was scary to be in the house with him. I was scared. I felt threatened. And so we had it out. And then when I said goodbye to them, I had um, come back to New York because I had five job interviews lined up that week. And I just said to them, I can't talk to you this week. I can't deal with this. We had just been crying and screaming and having it out for like 48 hours. So I said, I love you. Please don't call me. And I meant, don't call me for a week, you know, Mm -hmm. and then one week became two weeks, became three weeks. And it just felt so much better to not be embroiled in this awfully dysfunctional relationship. So there were letters back and forth and my mother was leaving me phone messages. I just, we did have communication like over the course of a year, but not much. And what I came to realize for myself was that the way I... I needed to save myself was to extricate myself from the relationship and that I could either like spend the rest of my life just in emotional turmoil, no, no good for anyone, or I could take a break, walk away and see how that felt. And it felt so much better. Hmm. Yeah. Did you feel like a burden was lifted? I mean, everything changed. I (laughs) of course also felt horribly guilty. I mean, I felt horribly guilty and ashamed and I'd never known anyone who'd done this before. I didn't have a word for it. I wouldn't have even thought of the word estranged. I just Mm -hmm. knew I couldn't physically talk to them anymore. Like I just couldn't live in this relationship anymore. I had, I guess, a kind of a breakdown. I couldn't hold down a job anymore. My boyfriend, now husband, and I left the city and moved to the country where he had a a one-year teaching job. And I started writing. I started teaching yoga. I started just spending a lot of time like trying to get better meditating and reading and in therapy and then slowly like building myself back up I kind of did the mothering the parenting that I hadn't gotten fully as a child I did that for myself when I was 28 29 30 mm-hmm. when I was reading um about that period where you were ch- you know having trouble holding down a job and actually that essay that you wrote um I read that essay when it came out the one about working for Bella Abzug. <laughs> so great. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it sounds like it was horrible working for her. <laughs> but I, it sounded to me like you had a little bit of PTSD. Have you ever like, for some people, it's helpful to kind of have a label for what they've been through. And for some people, it's, it's not helpful. So I don't know if that resonates with you or not. But Oh, no, I have PTSD oh, for yeah. sure. Okay. I mean, I have PTSD. You know, I get the nightmares and the headaches and it's easy for me to get sick, but I didn't know until I had that job. So I got what seemed like an incredible opportunity to be the personal assistant to this 
feminist, Bella Abzug, who I'd known about my whole life and larger than life figure in New York City. And, you know, she was difficult to assist. (laughs) And I think if I hadn't gone through what I had in my family, it probably would have been totally fine because, you know, a lot of famous people are difficult to assist. And that's the piece I wrote that you're talking about. It starts where I'm at a, like a support group for celebrity assistants. Oh my God. (laughs) Kind of comes with the job that the person you're assisting is generally going to be yelling at you. It made me feel like I was going to die, you know, and then like really just felt so sick from it. And, and that was one of those times when I couldn't get out of bed to go to work every day. What is wrong with me? I went to the doctor to find out what was medically wrong with me. And she heard who I was working for. And she said, you need to quit your job and you need to see a therapist immediately. You know, I've heard about Bella. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I went to the therapist. She'd heard about Bella too. So she had a reputation for being challenging personality, let's say. And when I went to the therapist and, you know, she started asking about my childhood and I told her about the abuse. She's, you know, that's what she said. You have PTSD and, you know, this is just not a safe environment for you to be in. You have to quit and you have to go back and look at your childhood and really like start remembering and start dealing with it or else you'll never be okay. Yeah. From that perspective, it makes so much sense that when you finally, you know, cut the ties that you felt so much better because it seemed like the abuse was much less if when you're getting older, but just being in the house with them, like it all kind of would come flooding back to you, just the anxiety and inability to like function just because that setting is, was the site of the trauma. I do want to also say that my parents were, you know, could be very loving. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they were horrible people. It's that they had a problem. You know, my father had a problem, an anger problem, and he didn't know how to manage his anger. And he had been abused by his father and he knew that, but he didn't know what to do about it. And my mother, I don't know how to explain like why she didn't leave, but I know that she loved my father. And I know that she had worked really hard to like get this, you know, middle-class existence going on Long Island. And I know she cared about what other people thought. And I know she wanted to be this nice Jewish family that everyone thought we were. And it just, I guess, was terrifying. To yeah. You. And, you know, who knows? I mean, she she suffered some abuse as well from him. So maybe she felt maybe the shame for her was too great, you know, or maybe. Right. Yeah. Or maybe there was some legacy in her family of being like codependent that can be as debilitating, like to when you, when you grow up with models of people accepting abusive behavior, right? Whether it's physical or emotional or alcohol or whatever, like you you become so conditioned to that of just like accepting like okay, well this is just part of life. This is just part of life. This is what I have to do. This is this is my role in life is to be the peacemaker and keep everyone together or whatever it is. Yeah, that, and this is how men are. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my mother would often mm-hmm. talk about. Well, at least you know, my father didn't drink a lot, and I think she thought a lot of men were worse. And maybe a lot of men were worse. I mean, I I, I would never say that I went through like a horrendous level of abuse. It, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like I was locked in a closet, deprived mm-hmm. of food. That made it more confusing. But my father did hit me and throw things at me and chase me and call me terrible names and. You know, my parents tried to kind of play it off like 
corporal punishment, but I knew it had nothing to do with discipline. So Hmm. yeah, it was just terribly confusing for me, ultimately in making the decision to walk away from them. It wasn't that I'm going to punish them or they're the most horrible people that have ever walked the face of this earth. It was, you know, if I had a boyfriend or a husband who was abusing me, I would need to leave to save myself. Right. And everyone would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And no one would think Mm -hmm. I was a terrible person. So I had someone who was, you know, being abusive toward me and, um, I didn't feel safe. And even if I could know that, even if I could get to the point with him where it it would never go on again, this was still someone who had done that to me for years and years in my most vulnerable state as a child. And I just couldn't continue a relationship with him. It just, I couldn't do that and go on to like have a happy and healthy life. Mm -hmm. In the same Mm -hmm. way, if you had an abusive partner, you, you know, you would want to cut that person out of your life. So it's really hard And I certainly like miss having a family, you know, that kind of extended family. But I just know from the way my life changed that although it was a selfish decision, it was selfish in like the very best sense of the word, like, you know, (laughs) like full of self, like I did it for myself and I did it for the possibility of having a new family. And thank God I did. That's Mm -hmm. how I feel. Yeah. did yoga play a role in, in helping you process things? Like when did you f- first start going to yoga? It played a huge role. And that's why I was so excited to talk to you because <laughs> I didn't write about it that much in the book, but it really was very, very important for me. The first time I ever did like any sort of a yoga class was at a summer theater program in high school. And I just remember such a sense of like freedom and joy and my body had been something that for so long had made me feel hurt and bad and scared in terms of, you know, the physical abuse and then also like struggles with weight. And there were just, and I wasn't good at sports. There was like nothing about my body that felt positive Mm -hmm. to me as a kid. And this was something that did, and it was yoga and also Alexander technique and constructive rest and all those kinds of like movements connected to theater people, let's say. Yeah. It felt really good, but I didn't, I didn't know how to access it again. Then ended up going to Nepal for a semester in college and a friend and I went to a yoga class in Kathmandu. And that was like my first official yoga class was in Kathmandu. Wow. And again, it felt really, really great. Just the poses felt really great. That semester, I was also like forced into a situation of massive hiking that I, I didn't even know I was getting into. So it was like a huge psychological transformation for me, those months of being in such a different place, being so physically active, and it felt incredible. But I didn't continue with yoga. Uh, but then when I was in living in New York City around age 26, something like that, um, I went to the old Jiva Mukti, like two old Jiva Muktis ago. I remember the first <laughs> Back yeah, in the day, back one. in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the teacher was playing the harmonium and we were asked to do all these intense poses. And it was like, 
mind blowing. And I quit smoking and I stopped eating meat and I just felt so great. And that was the beginning for me. Yeah. And then but you, and you ended up studying Iyengar yoga too, didn't you? Yes. That's, that's what I practice. And that's what I studied. The, the very first teachers right. I had were Ativa Mukti. So, and that got you hooked. I studied with Baron Baptiste and those people for a while. Yeah. So I kind of explored different um, avenues. I eventually, after getting married, we moved to Los Angeles for a job my husband had there. And I started, I did the teacher training program at Yoga Works with Mati and oh Lisa. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I and probably knew that years ago, but I forgotten that. Yeah. So you're sort of, you know, you, you have to take Iyengar classes when yeah. you're studying with Lisa and then mm-hmm. it's encouraged. Mm-hmm. So I heard people started kind of like talking about, there's this teacher named Marla Apt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> She's like magic. And I started going to her class. Oh, I should say I'd taken an Iyengar class years before and I, I left with like rope burn and I didn't understand it. Like I wasn't ready for it. I hated it. But so fast forward, I go to Marla Apt's class and it just was just felt so good on my body and just so good on a deep level. And that started me on the path of studying the anger method with continuing to study with Marla and lots of other people along the way as we've lived all different kinds of places like Patricia Walden in Cambridge and then at the Institute in New York. And, um, but that's definitely like where I've been at for many years and what feels really good to me and has helped me so much in dealing with everything I write about in the book and also in writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, did you intentionally like set aside time to practice while you were writing? Like if you were writing a particularly difficult part of the book, did you inc- inc- make sure you practiced? I tried really hard to practice every day mm-hmm. while I was writing. Mm-hmm. And some days that just meant, you know, supta baddha konasana, supta virasana, a headstand, a chair, shoulder stand, and that's it. Yeah. And some days I would force myself to do, you know, handstands and backbends. And, um, I would really try and make time for it because I knew that like, that would be the difference between having a migraine or not at the end of like mm. a really hard writing day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some days it's hard because your mind like tricks you into thinking that you don't have time. So there were definitely many days where my mind tricked me yeah. <laughs> into thinking I didn't have time, but in general, I would definitely try and practice every day. I moved to Maine two years ago in the middle of writing the book. And that was a big change for my yoga practice because it meant that instead of living in New York where I'd been and being able to take yoga class, you know, whenever I had time, I had to really be serious about my home practice. Mm -hmm. I'd had a home practice for years, but you know, my home practice became the way I was doing yoga unless I was traveling. So that was a big change. Yeah, that is a huge change. And do you do you do you do it all on your own or do you practice with anything online or anything like that? You just I do sometimes if I'm feeling like I really need a teacher today, yeah. I will take Marla's classes on Yoga Glow. I also really love Patricia Walden's book of series or you know, with her um I think it's called the Woman's Book of Yoga, mm-hmm. those series. And then um Bobby Clinnell's book where she has lots of different series. Yeah. And then I'll like, you know, research things online and stuff like that. But in mostly I, I do it myself and then I'll take, I'll take workshops and I'll take classes and then kind of add that into my practice when I come back home. You know, one of the things that you said earlier, when you said something like walking away was 
one of the most self quote unquote, like selfish things I did, but from the perspective of self, it just reminded me of, you know, in yoga, when we talk about like doing things for ourselves, for the benefit of all beings, you know, that when we do prioritize our wellness and our health and our stillness and all these things, that it has a ripple effect on the, on the people around us. And, you know, you talk in your book about giving birth and how you just took to being a mother and to mothering so naturally and so immediately. And I'm so happy for you to read that. Yeah. I mean, how much do you feel like yoga helps you with, with your mothering since that was something, some of the aspects of mothering were missing from your own childhood? Just not getting wrapped up in like the first moment of, you know, panic or anger or frustration and no, and like having a way to soothe myself and just practically also, I remember when my son was much younger and it's really intense and you're there with your young child, like day in and day out, he would nap and I would practice. I remember he was very hard to get to go to sleep at one point for his naps, but he had, you know, like so many kids, he had to have the nap to have the rest of his day go well. Mm -hmm. And I would like sit by the side of his bed, kind of do some sort of a forward bend or some sort of meditative, you know, seat and just, like my practice would be to not get mad about the fact that he was not falling asleep and <laughs> be calm yeah. because I knew that like the more calm I could be, that's when he would fall asleep. Like when I became like unattached from whether or not he was going to fall asleep would be the moment he would fall asleep. So with the idea of being selfish, I mean, I could have stayed in the relationship with my family members and I'm sure it would have been better like for my parents and brothers. It wouldn't have been better for me. And it's not just that like I couldn't, there's no way I could have gone on to be the kind of mother I am or the kind of partner to my husband, but like I wouldn't have been helpful in the world at all. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would have been a drag on the world because I was a mess. I was a mess. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's really, I I appreciate you're saying that because it's helpful for me to think that, to Mm -hmm. have that thought that like, it's not just that I was helping myself. And it's not even just that I was helping my family, but I just wanted to be a positive person in the world. And this is what I had to do to get there. Yeah. It's helped me so much with my being a mother that like, I can't imagine, you know, it's like, I would just be a different person without my yoga practice. So I I can't imagine what it would be like to be a mother without it. I, I assume I would find something else that would like give me that. Because certainly like if I go for a hike and, you know, mm-hmm. there are other ways to like access that feeling. But if I didn't have any way to, to get calm and get in my body, then that would be really bad. Yeah. I wanted to say that I think one of like the most beautiful parts of the writing of the book is that you don't demonize your parents. Like that I didn't come away feeling like that, you know, that they were bad people at all. Like they, you know, they did their best. And like you said, like there was a legacy of, of violence and I don't know, it's just a testament to you and and your ability to tell your story that that came through. So I just wanted to to say that and I'm happy for you. You know, like one of the lines that I highlighted in my Kindle was, you know, you said when I when I made the decision to walk away from my parents, I I made the decision to be happy. And that just kind of says it all. Like and I, I it also makes me think of, you know, when yoga when the first time you hear someone say like happiness is your birthright. Not being in pain is your birthright. For me, the first time I I heard that, it was just so huge, you know, growing up in like a guilt-ridden Italian family (laughs) where there's like a lot of selflessness is expected. Like I grew up in a really patriarchal environment and 
to hear that is so powerful. And I, I would imagine also for you to like be able to reclaim your own body in the yoga practice must have been so powerful. Well, I think that must be why I was drawn to yoga and why it's become so important to me. Mm-hmm. My body from something that made me feel bad and was just like hurt and scary and naked and vulnerable to something that can be a source of healing and, but something that makes my mind feel better too. You know, mm-hmm. my body feels better. My mind feels better. Like I'm a better person because of practicing. And also when you're someone who's in your head a lot, I mean, I, I always, it's so interesting to me to meet like other people in Iyengar yoga classes because it's a group of people who tend to be in our heads mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. <laughs> and it's really good, even though it's still a very, I guess you could say we're in our heads in the practice because we're kind of thinking a lot about this and that, but to move out of your head and into your body, you know, is like super helpful. I know we both have to have to wrap up, but I want to just ask... And I'm sure this has kind of come up on the book tour. What would you like people to know? One thing is that if you make the decision to create really clear boundaries with a family member or to become estranged from a family member, it does not mean you're a bad person, a horrible person. Please relieve yourself of of that guilt. It is okay. It's a good thing to save yourself from a relationship like that. And I, I always go back to the idea of an abusive spouse or mm-hmm. boyfriend or, cause I don't think, mo, 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 you know, it's very hard to blame yourself in that situation. It's so easy to blame yourself when it's your, when it's your parent mm-hmm. or, or a family member. But if you can think of it that way, like, okay, so if, if you had um, a partner who was abusing you and you left, how would that make you feel? And then do the thought exercise of thinking about that in terms of a family member and that, you know, you have the right, like if someone's treating you horribly, you have the right to save yourself and walk away. Mm. And that can mean many things because for some people, it means I'm going to talk to my parent twice a year or once a month, or just, there are so many ways you can set boundaries. I think it takes a lot of strength to continue a relationship and to have those boundaries. For me, I just, I couldn't figure out how to do that. That wasn't for me. Mm but I totally respect that. And I also think that is a super valid choice to leave a relationship like that behind and to save yourself. And that is okay. And it does not make you a bad person um, at all. It makes you a good person because you're trying to become a healthier person. And that is like, we all deserve that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I mean, your book helped me a lot for personal reasons that I shared with you. And I know it's helped so many people and I I just love talking to you. Thanks so much. I love talking to you too. Thanks as always for listening. Show notes can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 66. And I will put links to by Jessica's book and also links to her website so you can read her other writing and interviews. And until next week, enjoy your practice. 